Good morning. It is great to be uh, together in community today for this great conversation and to continue uh, what's been a phenomenal uh, Bible Institute already. Dr. Johanna Juncker is, uh, teaches theology, spirituality, and the art at Pacific School of Religion. As uh, Carla just indicated, recently received her PhD from the Graduate Theological Union. She's a lifelong Methodist. Uh, Dr. Juncker was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil and received her BA from the Universidad Metodista de Sao Paulo. She holds an MTS from Christian Theological Seminary, and while at the GTU, she was awarded a Presidential Scholarship, a Louisville Institute Fellowship, and a Hispanic Theological Initiative Dissertation Scholarship. Uh, part of what Johanna represents uh, for us at Pacific School of Religion is a, a, the changing phase of the reality of the church and the world. Uh, our faculty over the last few years has become a, a majority people of color community, uh, and particularly around Methodism. Uh, this uh, institute, Bible Institute has, I think, allowed us uh, as a community to experience uh, at a really critical time for the denomination, how do we hold in tension both a progressive view of the church and its ministries together with a global perspective. And so over the last couple of weeks and as part of our uh, experiences at PSR, we have a, an experience of global Methodism with roots in Brazil, in Philippines, as we heard a couple of weeks ago from Joyce, uh, certainly from Randall Miller, uh, more in the United States. But also the one we have to make sure we get here eventually is another of our Methodist faculty members, uh, Sharon Jacob, uh, who's from India originally as well and a lifelong Methodist in, in her community. I mention all of this because I think it is significant as we think about mobility and migration, about the reality that the opportunity that the church has is that we are a part of communities that know no borders. Uh, while we are emphasizing some of the differences and boundaries between our communities, the reality of the church it is, is that it is one of the very few institutions that has a very, very long history of having a global understanding of itself as a body of Christ. And so how does that speak not only to the particularities of our communities and denominations, but to the broader church? If you love what you hear today, which I know you will, I invite you to come to campus to hear uh, Dr. Juncker will be part of our Professors of Practice a, a public course that's going on right now. Uh, the title is, as you can, uh, will quickly learn, Democracy Reimagined. So if you have uh, your phone, let me ask you to do this just for a second, pull out your phone and then just put in psr.edu forward slash pop, P-O-P for professors of practice. This is a course that is bringing together conversations uh, from experts in technology, business and the arts to try to think how do we reimagine democracy. Dr. Yonker's section, which will be done in April, will be four Wednesday nights uh, on campus in which we will focus on how do artists help us imagine the possibility of a different image of democracy. Uh, for four weeks, we'll have East Bay artists of color that will come to campus to explore together with Jeff Chang and, 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 and with uh, Johanna. Uh, Things like Afrofuturism, how do we imagine a future with the Wakanda, uh, the Wakanda dream artworks. We'll also have, I don't know if you have artwork from Fabiana on your presentation today, but not today, but Fabiana Rodriguez, who's uh, one of the best known artists around uh, migration, will be on campus as well. So we encourage you to consider participating in those. So welcome, Johanna, great to have you here. Companheiros, companheiras e companheires, it's a great to be here. Is this working? Yes. All right. I just have to do the thing. So some of you might not be able to see me. That should be my question. Can you see me back there behind my computer <laughs> in all of my five full tallness? Um, it's a pleasure to be here, um, and it's an honor that I get to speak uh, among you, to learn, and to let these um, issues around immigration, borders, peoples on the move circulate our bodies today. Uh, one breath deeper, as I like to say. I don't know of a better place to have this conversation than within a space of a sanctuary, uh, where we study, where we worship, where we live together, where we breathe together, we imagine together in these spaces. Last week, I was in conversation with Jeff uh, Chang, a leading voice on issues of equity and racial justice here, and he realized that it was within this um, space uh, that the first seed of, uh-oh, 
I can't, I can't do this. I do this all the time. <laughs> that it was within the spaces, um, religious spaces, that the first seeds um, of his activism got planted many, many, many years ago. Um, so our feet are gently touching sacred ground right here. And uh, this is one of the very few places um, that we hold together a sense of community. Um, even if everything seems to be falling apart around us. Um, and it is right here, I believe, that we can conjure up another way of being, imagining new possibilities for acting, and to think critically with one another which voices are missing from our spaces, which bodies don't circulate here, um, which voices, um, which messages um, have not reached us inside of these walls. So I'm here today uh, to talk about power of art in fashioning in us a different way of being. When I was a very small child in Sao Paulo, Brazil, my mom, as the Christian educator that she is, took me to a two-hour-long lecture at five years old to hear someone speak. Uh, some of you might be familiar with his work, uh, Ruben Alves. He's a Brazilian theologian. Um, and you know why I patiently waited the two hours in that lecture? because she promised me that when the lecture was over, we were gonna try to go up on stage and to ask for him to autograph um, this book, which was my first um, children's book. Um, and I'll show you, I'll show you. Um, this is interesting because it was, um, the name of this book is How Gladness Was Born. My first contact with theology and theopoetics, I like to think about theopoetics as a way of articulating the character of God through the arts and um, through theology. Um, and this is a story in which God appears as a flower um, who is trying to restore in uh, God's children a sense of hope that comes out of despair. Um, so. Uh, when everything else failed in Ruben Alves' life, when the academy um, rejected him, when the ch he wasn't um, able to be in uh, spaces like this, sacred spaces like this, he turned to the words and to the arts to write children's books. Uh, so it's, right, I, it's here to remind me of where I have come from and uh, where my theology kind of um, emerged from. Um, Alvis taught me to write, uh, and that, that we write and we make art um, to connect with one another because there's an itch inside of us, and sometimes it's a painful one. So art is a way to speak to that pain, to feel it, and to resignify it, and art is a fundamental way to be suspended from the everyday and to be able to see what needs to be transformed in us. So after the lecture was over, we got up on stage, he autographed the book, and he told me to find ways to resist those who have evil in their eyes. This is what God is trying to do uh, in this narrative that he wrote. Uh, the mother flower is attempting to protect um, the child flower from those who have evil in their eyes. Um, so um, I come to you um, with this uh, sort of voice, this whisper of Ruben Alves in my ear that has accompanied me since I was five. Um, so that we can find ways to expand the limits of our imagination and to bring about change. We are living in a very difficult time, a time where we are angered, frustrated, and many times lost. Our people has uh, been attacked and despised and humiliated and killed. And if you know your community well, you know what I'm talking about. I bet you know well the children being incarcerated and caged um, in the United States. Children, even little babies, um, taken away from their families, um, kept in cages. Only Latinx children, uh, but the children of precious people from everywhere. Last year, there were 52,000 immigrants held in for-profit jails around this country. Homeland Security own Specter General revealed how detained immigrants are subjected to rotten food, 
severe overcrowding, inadequate medical care, and broken and overflowing toilets. Uh, Border Patrol also holds people at the border stations, patrol stations, which are often referred to as yeleras, ice boxes, and they always describe them as being incredibly cold. There were multiple violations of ICE's own detention stand. Um, in Trump, um, and at least four more died shortly after being released. There are at least 24 people who have died, right? Um, so this is very tragic. Uh, my heart sinks to the ground when I um, look at these numbers. Let me show you some of them. Oh, and this just happened. On February 14th, Border Patrol said that it will deploy elite tactical agents to sanctuary cities. Um, this was uh, February 14th that this came up. So these are the immigration detention centers in the U.S. in the 2019 fiscal year, okay? And there were 352,000, almost 353,000 immigrants detained um, this year. And this is kind of uh, the, the length of the detention. Okay, two to four years, 48% of folks, okay? This homeland is also the homeland of securitized borders, the homeland of for-profit jail, the homeland of concentration camps, the homeland of picket line and underpaid jobs, the homeland of sexual abuses of women, afraid to say something because if they do, they're threatened, right, to be uh, held by immigration. It's a land of fear and abuse and humanity taken away. This is a land that has been killing joy and devastating hopes. Um, and contemporary visual arts uh, have been very powerful prophet voices, I believe, in responding and denouncing these atrocities and resisting the scandals of empire, colonialism, neoliberalism, blah, 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 white supremacy. Their public performances stage acts of uh, resistance while also allowing for a praxis of collective testimony in the face of political oppression. Their artistic accomplishments, they reinsert suppressed narratives into the public sphere. Speaking of democracy, how to reimagine, refashion democracy because it's obviously not working. Establishing an inescapable relationship between the artwork that we're going to see today and us viewers as witnesses and as testimonies to these stories. Their accomplishments reinsert suppress narratives, right? As Angela Michelle Ortiz, we're gonna see uh, today, um, does. She resisted and exposed oppressive political regimes, genocidal policies, and fascist governments while showing our complicity in remaining silent in the face of horror, okay? She's a very skilled muralist. Here she is. Uh, and we're going to watch some, uh, some of uh, her efforts in trying to address um, this horror that I just uh, spoke about. Um, so she, her art is dedicated to peoples that have been erased, have been sent to prison, have disappeared. Through her art, she creates a space of dialogue, and you will see how people come together to make art and transform spectators into participants um, to move forward with a sense of collectivity uh, and responsibility, right? The ability to respond to the urgencies of our times in resistance and solidarity. Um, sh uh, we're going to look at one project of hers called Familias Separadas. Las Madres de Burks. Let me see if this will work. All right. Yo no sabía para dónde me llevaban hasta que dijeron que teníamos que íbamos a ser trasladadas para el centro. Pues ahí en ese centro, pues yo nunca me lo esperé. Nunca tenía en mente, nunca, nunca se me vino en mente que yo iba a estar por tanto tiempo en ese centro. Tuvimos en total... These are the, out, uh, the billboards. Um, I don't know if you can see. Those are the interventions that she um, puts out into the city to call attention to what's happening at the Berks uh, Detention Center. Could you... Is she in the U.S.? She's in the U.S., yeah. 
uh, is in Philadelphia. 700 días ahí. Solo faltaban como 15 días para cumplir los dos años de estar en el centro. Ellos como que no tienen hijos, como que como que uno es nadie, así. Que no había necesidad de este trauma. No había necesidad que nosotros pasáramos esta, este, este sacrificio que pasamos. Y al gobernador, pues lo que le dije una vez al oficial de inmigración. Póngase en mis zapatos y díganme, ¿qué le contestaría a su hijo si su hijo le... This artistic intervention that uh, she did right in front of the city hall steps these narratives uh, that we're hearing. Le dice, mamá, ¿por qué no podemos ir por un helado? Mamá, ¿por qué no podemos ir por ropa? Mamá, ¿por qué no puedo salir? Mamá, ¿por qué no puedo ir a un parque? Mamá, ¿por qué no puedo ser libre? Quisiera que él se pusiera en los zapatos de nosotros y que tratara de... que tomara dos minutos de su tiempo y que tratara de analizar el daño y el trauma que les está haciendo a los niños. Eso. This is a this is the second intervention um, right in front of that building that we saw, but on the streets, we are human beings risking our lives for our families and our future. Oh, this doesn't have sound. Can you see? Yeah. So she mobilized an entire community that has been affected by this, uh, staging this performance. And like I said, I look at this as um, a place for coming together, uh, reclaiming a state of agency, um, and demanding to be seen. This is phase two, and then we're gonna we're gonna see phase uh, three now of of this project. Soy la madre de la fuente cristalina, soy un canto musical de claves, soy la llave de este mundo y su brebaje, soy la lluvia que te brinda el aguacero, el chubasco permanente, el amor verdadero, soy el volcán del cielo, la lava creciente que recorre los campos de hielo, soy la hija de la tierra, soy la amante que cultiva los frutos y su siembra, soy el rocío que salpica fulminante, los rayos de sol un arco iris penetrante, soy dulce, soy salada, soy la pluma de la flecha, Andina con su danza, soy la esperanza de mi pueblo, soy la promesa intacta, soy la sangre de este suelo, soy el consuelo, soy la cura, soy la figura más pura, soy la nieve, soy la bruma, soy la cascada que salta por catarata, la súbita regata de vida que nos retrata, yo soy la piel de todos, soy el copo de nieve que llora por tus ojos, soy esa fuerza que se precipita en el centro del capullo donde nace la semilla. So she starts um, on the steps and then goes to the streets, comes back to in front of the, the hall. And this is the last phase of this project um, where let me see, this is the right, yes. Where, remember the interview that we um, That interview, she creates visual work from that, from 
So from the narratives, she creates moving images and she imprints the halls, um, I mean the walls of this building with those visual moving images. And this is what we're gonna get to see right now. She's sort of lifting uh, what is stuck and what perspires between the cracks of these um, concrete buildings. These are all visual projections. Por la casa de mi mamá sobre el suelo de tierra. Jugaba con mis hermanos meciendo la hamaca de multicolores y envueltos de árboles de jocote y cerezas que bailaban con el viento. Junto con mi mamá íbamos al río soleado para bañarnos. Año and she specifically doesn't translate these um, to sort of bring back uh, the sense that Spanish is a part of the, um, of the languages that are spoken in this country, right? Um, even though our ears may feel a strangeness in listening to this, um, there are hundreds of millions of people actually in the country that um, this is their primary language. 25 days. El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, México. Caminamos por espinas, tierras blancas y montes. Crucé el río crecido, oscuro y de color café. Cayó agua fría del cielo, gris. So this is the story of a mother crossing the border with her son. Um, and in this trajectory, how the child understood this to unfold. Asking mom, please don't let go of my hand. Please don't let go of me. Donde guardo todo y le pido perdón. Caminamos entre pasillos y cuartos fríos con otras mamás y niños. Veo a mi hijo crecer entre esta tormenta que estamos viviendo, entre los sonidos de las guardias. Se siente poco a poco que la vida se nos va. Ahora son más de 600 días sin libertad. And she's in prison for more uh, than 600 years. Days, yes. It may feel like years, right? So this, uh, it's a, it has, I have other videos here, so if um, I can share, the presentation has hyperlinks with folks if you want to do and um, hear a little bit more of the work that uh, Michelle Angela Ortiz is doing. Um, we're going to move on to the next artist who I think is also revolutionizing the ways in which we think about the borders and migration and issues of identity and crossing. So all of these slides have the hyperlinks to these videos, okay? If they make their way to you. <laughs> um, Ronald uh, Rael, he is the department chair of, of the architecture department here at UC Berkeley. Are you familiar with his work? Yes, okay. Um, and he, and this department is within the environmental design and visual arts, um, I mean, environmental design and something something department here at UC Berkeley, it escapes me. Um, so part of what he is trying to imagine is what, what is this wall? What is this border? Um, and when he took pink 
very bright pink teeter-totters to the U.S.-Mexico border. He didn't know that what he and his team uh, were doing would go very viral. This just happened last year. Um, he just wanted to create a moment where people would come together on both sides of the wall and would be connected to each other. So I'll show you some images of how that happened. So he's taking the teeter-totter. He describes as having, you know, a rush of adrenaline because he wouldn't know how Border Patrol would react to this and people were coming together and playing. And look at this image. Yes. Um, he says, women and children completely disempowered the wall. For one, for 45 minutes that they were there playing with one another, they disempowered the wall. That is a very profound image to take down the wall and what it stands for. And he says there was a kind of sanctuary hovering, hovering over the event. This happened on July 28th. Um, Uh, with members of the El Paso and Juarez communities. Um, they helped install uh, the teeter-totters um, on the 18-foot-tall steel wall that divides the United States and Mexico in, an in Anapra, um, outside the Ciudad Juarez. Um, so what he says is that part of what he's trying to do is to bring a shared moment of convivencia to live with one another, to coexist. There isn't, like, the convivir, I don't think there's a, uh, an English translation to that. To live with, a, a specific word that evokes to live with. Can you think of a word? <laughs> kind of, that addresses part of it, I think. But there's a sense of amparo, um, of like this. <laughs> uh, it's, yes, yes. And he says, uh, fellowship, yeah, it, it may be a way that comes close, but probably, he said, to put it simply, I think a spirit of convivencia, or convivencia in Espanol, is hanging out and having fun. <laughs> and this, what he was trying to do is to hang out and have, to provide a space for folks to do that outside the white gaze, right? Outside uh, um, this uh, American imaginary of bad hombres, right? Um, so he said that people, children, were playing together, congregating, embracing, uh, praying, sharing some food despite the, the hardships and, and the poverty That the, and xenophobia that the wall represents. Um, Michael Deere, a geographer and the author of a very important book, I believe, on issues of the wall, specifically called Why Walls Don't Work, uh, he points out that the first survey maps authorized by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo are masterpieces of the pen executed by individual artists who stamped their personalities onto cartographic representations of immensely varied topography. So while the dehumanization of migrants is increasingly alarming consequence of bo uh, border policies, we must smuggle some humanity back into the border as Rael did, right? Um, let's listen to how um, he's talking about this. Oh, this is the plan, um, the architectural program of that, the teeter-totter intervention. And this is an excellent book that he wrote, came out two years ago, Border Wall as Architecture, a manifesto for the U.S.-Mexico boundary. So let's listen to him. Um, there is an, a very, very excellent um, TED talk that we won't have time to, to listen to today, but I encourage you to, it's on the slides too, to watch it. It's only 11 minutes, but it's phenomenal. He condenses and collapses the 300 plus pages of the book into an 11 minute talk, and it's really profound. This is um, the children play. <laughs> And this is on why he did this. Professor here at the University of California, Berkeley.
quickly, and I am interested in seeking alternatives to the border fence between the United States and Mexico. The history of security in, in military terms is that we would construct walls and barriers that would divide. And today, I think we are sophisticated enough to think of alternatives that not necessarily divide, but actually bring people together. The first time I visited the wall, and I drove towards the wall, it was incredible because I saw the issues come forward immediately. So for example, there was a small gap in the wall, and suddenly as we drove, we saw a fox coming through the wall, and then coyotes, and it was almost like a zoo in a sense, and then there were owls, and I realized that this wall is a funnel for wildlife. And At the same time, I realized that they were crossing so easily that I too could cross so easily, so what was the point of the wall? Through design, we can dismantle the idea of the wall by introducing new ideas that transform the wall into something else. This map shows the amount of solar energy that can be collected uh, in the United States, and we see that the most energy that can be collected is prevalent along the U.S.-Mexico border. Creating a solar farm along the border would maximize the potential to create solar energy, but also create a doubly secure border because you have the security, the private security of the solar installation itself, and also homeland security. The numbers of deaths since the construction of the fence have gone up significantly. The number one cause of death for illegal immigrants crossing the border is, is dehydration because it drives people to further extremes in order to cross the border. One proposal is to create a border fence that couples uh, solar energy collection with water collection. We would create beacons along the wall where water could be collected and distributed so that if there was someone in trouble in the desert, and it could be an illegal migrant or it could be a, an American citizen, they can then have access to water and shade, but also border patrol can be contacted so that it can save lives. I need to say something. I don't subscribe to illegality of people. I think no human is illegal. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with his language. I just needed to say that. The wall would be designed to collect rainwater. There would be a filtration system that is full of sand and, and gravel. And then water purifiers powered by photovoltaic panels could then clean and distribute the water to someone in need. When I approached the wall, children from the village across the wall ran towards me and we had discussions and I realized that the wall, because of the relationship between the border patrol and the children, is that they were sharing language and so the border patrol agents were teaching them English and they were speaking English and I thought, well this is fantastic. The wall in this case, while being very negative, actually has these positive implications. One aspect of connecting people across the border is in this design, which is the a library where people can exchange books actually through the wall itself. So you have a bi-national library where people can come and exchange books, check out books, have discussions, and it's uh, situated right in an urban environment uh, along the wall. And so in this case, the wall isn't seen as a divider any longer, but it's the facilitator for exchange. The New River is the most toxic river in the United States. It flows from Mexicali, Mexico, into Calexico, California. Instead of patrolling the people who are in the river attempting to cross, we should be patrolling the toxicities that are actually crossing into the United States. And so one of our proposals is a wastewater treatment plant. And here you see the New River where it crosses the border. And instead, that river could be funneled into a wastewater treatment plant, purified, and then released back into what is one of the breadbaskets of the United States in the Imperial Valley. Many of the designs are satirical, but they're satirical to reveal the absurdity of the wall itself. And so, for example, there's many kinds of informal exchanges that take place along the border. People go and hug, communion is actually given through the border, border patrol agents will buy snow cones through the border and exchange money and food illegally, really, across the border. And so we wanted to heighten this idea by building an infrastructure of seating and tables and a place where food can be cooked in this idea for a burrito wall. Building a wall that's not a dumb wall, but is a social infrastructure that connects communities and connects lives together, I think is maybe the best step towards immigration reform. Amen to that. <laughs> um, let me pause this. Whoops. We don't want to see this. Go away! <laughs> uh, I lost my, my presentation. So yeah, check him out. Um, the last artist um, that I wanna talk about with you today, because I do wanna leave time for questions, so this is a wrap up, I suppose, is Ana Teresa Fernandez. She's a Mexican, another artist thinking, she's Mexican, living in the US. She teaches here at the San Francisco Art Institute, 
a phenomenal painter, but she's also a performance artist. And um, she is um, staging interventions along the border for quite some time. And to me, oops, that's not her, this is, this is she. <laughs> there. Um, when I first saw this exhibition um, in, uh, at the Nevada Museum of Art at a conference called Unsettling, um, I was floored. There was a video showing of this particular inter intervention along the, 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 the border, and my mind just went, Um, so I will show you what it is. Um, this is her work. She went to the border, she found the correct match of how the sky at that particular time of year would, uh, which hue of blue it would have. And then she painted this. Can you see, I mean, you can't see, it looks, like there, the wall was just erased on that little corner, that little par portion of it. And it's called erasing uh, the border, borrando la frontera. This was an intervention she did in 2012 and she kept doing it, 2013 and so forth. Wow. Um, let me show you a, a, a tiny little video of her speaking about this. And then we'll end with that, okay? This is her studio here. My name is Ana Teresa Fernandez. I'm a visual artist and we are here in my studio. I was raised in Tampico, Mexico until I was 11 years old and then my, my family moved us to the U.S. And so I actually grew up between two worlds, two languages. I find myself incredibly fortunate that I was able to swim back and forth so seamlessly across this border. And it was in 2011 where I saw that this area where people used to converge at the border, people all over from Latin America and all over the US, Canada and beyond, they would come here and meet sometimes after 20 years of being separated and embrace and touch and hug. Under the Obama administration, sadly, Friendship Park closed its doors and so people were no longer able to touch. And that was, I think, one of the most heartbreaking moments for me to witness how that separation occurred where people were only able to see themselves across this metal mesh. And that's when I knew I had to do something. And I came up with the idea of Borrando la Frontera, which was to bring the sky back down between the US and Mexico border. We hit three different states at the same time and perforated it with the sky and we projected it at those three different locations worldwide. And just like sharing this, this thought of like not having a wall divide us. A nation without borders is not a nation. Beginning today, the United States of America gets back control of its borders, gets back its borders. I think that Trump winning was was incredibly surprising for me. Um, I really genuinely thought that Clinton was going to win, and in in some regard, I felt, oh, my my work is no longer going to be relevant because I feel like we're going to be progressing so much more, and this rhetoric is almost going to become something that we can archive in the past. All of a sudden, I felt like I was kind of putting my political hat away. But this kind of jolted me back, and if anything, I think it's the time where, where I'm feeling like I'm having to put my armor back on and really, really start projecting a, the strongest voice I can and talking about our rights. I think art has one of the most powerful tools in the sense that it can stir the imagination, and that is one of the most powerful weapons anyone can use. Because it is yes. the imagination. All right. Um, 
I agree with her. It's one of our most powerful um, weapons. And also, I think one of the most powerful tools in staging revolution, right? So there's so, so, so much to do. My God, there is so much to do and to be and to become and to do and to be undone in many ways. Um, I know that we sometimes feel very paralyzed um, because we don't know, you know, what to do when the challenges are overwhelming as they are. But somehow we have to engage more fiercely to participate more fully with those who are actually on the grounds doing the work that they're doing, which is a work of resistance, awareness, and transformation. Everywhere we have precious people like these artists who are trying to help to bring a light of love, a body of resistance, and a narrative of love too. Uh, people who do care for the asylum seekers, immigrants, and refugees. Churches, organizations, lawyers, uh, nonprofit, um, pastors, and folks here in the community, and so on, know that the situation of the Latinx community is very dramatic, and not only in the US, but throughout Central and South America. Corruption, stealing of natural resources, the murdering of um, indigenous activists, the death of the earth, hunger, violence, the only way for us to move forward is if we move together. We have to think and feel together about who and we are and how we must respond and move ahead. That is why we're here to gain intellectual, moral, and spiritual power. We have the most profound power in our hands, the power to care for our hearts, our bodies, our minds, and our souls, the power to play with, with one another, to resist together, to raise our voices, our paintbrushes, our creative bodies, our inst musical instruments to hold each other so we can keep ourselves from losing heart. I want to end with a little portion of um, um, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15 that reminds us to be gentle and fierce uh, so we can find collective hope, community sustenance, and spiritual resilience. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's words. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Johanna. And one of the things that she didn't mention, uh, mention not only does she have uh, this recent PhD, she's an artist in her own right. So I'm just gonna jump in for a moment and ask you to tell us a little bit about your own artwork and how you have um, used your artwork in resistance and what it means to you. Okay. Thank you for that question. <laughs> I wasn't gonna mention that. <laughs> Um, so part of what I do uh, with the artwork, um, I do a lot of painting, um, I do organizing with the artwork. So in 2018, just to give you an example, uh, in Brazil we lost uh, the first black lesbian uh, Brazilian councilwoman, uh, Marielle Franco. And part of what I did with a collective of queer women that sought asylum here in the US was to create an altar for Marielle Franco and we exhibited that um, in San Francisco. So people were able to sort of come together, share, learn about the work that she is doing, help support the institute that was founded by her sister. In, um, and she was from the Mare Favela, so um, her sister, uh, Aniele Franco started this institute. So all the money that was collected um, is 
was sent to Aneli Franco in the Institute, um, but it was also a really powerful um, experience to see folks who weren't particularly spiritual or religious gather around to pay solemn reverence to the work that she was doing. So that was one. Um, the, another um, artwork that, um, let me see if I, I forgot the name of the work. How's that possible? <laughs> Academia, that's how. <laughs> Uh, Letra Moto, uh, Wordquake. So what I did uh, with this work, I inverted the, and connected the maps of the US and Brazil and sort of posited both White Houses. We also have the, the presidential Palacio da Alvorada is also the house of whiteness, basically, is what it translates to. So I posited those spaces as being sort of the epicenter of the catastrophe of um, hate speech um, and white supremacy. And I, the way I delineated the maps was with the tweets from both Bolsonaro and Trump, and they're very similar and atrocious. That just, my body, like I would have to abandon it and then come back to it, abandon it and come back to it, because you just, we forget that words circulate our bodies and Im impact our bodies in very profound ways, right? So it was sort of like uh, stitching against, again, a topography of like trauma and, and hurt and pain as I was uh, doing that. That was at an exhibition in New York as well. So yeah. <laughs> that answers your question. It's a start. It's a start. I think uh, that's a long conversation. We'd love to see that aspect too. We'll open up to questions, but I just want to stop for one second. Think about this. The house of whiteness. Yeah. The house, the palace of whiteness, which is even more telling, right? And that, and, and thinking about it in those terms, and that is really the way it is being used in our countries right now. And how do we resist and take down that, those palaces of whiteness and what will be in their place. Because that's what the artist does, not only um, resist and deconstruct, but to re smuggle. <laughs> Any, uh, let's start with comments, questions. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for curating this, this visual uh, amazing analysis or start of analysis of, of just exactly um, the proxemics uh, of this wall. And I, I too have just at a very uh, late age started doing, being part of a public art thing around JR. And uh, I'm, I know the potential strengths, but really what, what struck me in your um, presentation was probably that I should race out and read Border Wall as Architecture. What, um, what, how much of the wall is solid? How much of it, you know, this kind of potential type one huge construction, and then because of costs, I'm sure that they've changed their design uh, and the structure of it to allow different types of interaction. Has that been kind of tracked and, and is there any kind of uh, migration or gathering places where people go because of the different kinds of communication that, and, and interaction and communities that can coalesce around this wall, do you know? Um, so he talked a little bit about this, but the numbers are from 2017. Uh, he published in 2018 this book. I am not sure, to answer your question, I don't know how much of it is concrete, how much of it is mesh, how much of it is just the iron curtain. Um, and um, it's heavily securitized. So you can't really go to Tijuana and, um, and, and you cannot. You cannot approach it. And there used to be a, a time, I think up until this last decade, that you could congregate, that you could coalesce, that you could come together and uh, share meals, um, share communion. Um, there were services that, were, that took place, but right now, I don't know of a, a particular place where that happens without the AK-47s right behind you and you know, terrorizing, basically, uh, the gathering of, of, of folks. 
Um, does anyone have uh, an answer to address this question? In a more, yeah, Maggie. So, to Judy and anyone interested, uh, a place I know of that has anything resembling a function or any allowance of, uh, of communion across or of any kind of community of uh, living, living with together uh, across the border, across the border wall is uh, what is technically still Friendship Park in Tijuana. Uh -huh. um, but technically. The, technically, because <laughs> yes. in its current states, um, and this has been true for uh, several years now, that it's only that uh, people on the US side are only allowed to enter uh, 10 at a time on Sunday afternoons and only when uh, Border Patrol uh, allows it. Um, and, and the state is such that uh, you're not allowed to pass, uh, for example, communion elements, uh, even like to pass it to take bits of it through the mesh. Like you can't say, uh, bless the bread by intinction on either side and pass it through. Um, uh, you'd probably be subject to, depending on your citizenship status or the color of your skin or your record, uh, some some degree of punishment, and it's such that I've I've worshipped at uh, the border church with uh, Sir John from uh, San Diego First Methodist and Guillermo Navarrete, uh, who leads it in Tijuana. And on one occasion, some of us were allowed to enter the Friendship Park space, uh, but on the first occasion, uh, due to feared unrest with the president's visit to San Diego in 2018, uh, they wouldn't allow an approach even at that hour, even at the designated hour, so it was done over loudspeakers. So it's a very ramshackle kind of community that takes place. Thank you so much. You had here and then I'll be up. Just in terms of the size of the wall, so the US-Mexico border is about 2,000 miles uh, long, uh, the connection between the two uh, countries. About right now, just over a third of it actually has a wall. So the majority of it doesn't, simply because it's, it's just ridiculous to try to imagine that length of a wall. Um, the other thing I would say that's critical to think about is when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, there were 17 walls around the world that divided nation states. Right now, there are 77. So think about what's happening globally in terms of our understanding of ourselves and this definition Trump has given that a nation is not a nation without boundaries. Uh, the last thing I want to say that is, runs through many of the artists that we heard is the, even the imaginative behind how we think of walls. So uh, Justo Gonzalez, who's a, 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 a professor, a, a, you know, historian, church historian, one of the best known uh, Latino uh, scholars in religion, talks about the difference between the language of English and Spanish around frontera. So front, frontier in the United States imagination is about the kind of Western expansion. Frontier is one directional, it only pushes one way. Anything that crosses this is a problem. So when you're pushing West in the United States, Native Americans cross, come back, across it, that's a problem, it's a threat. And that continues to be the imagination. You know, and the same thing happened as we got to the West and then kept pushing West into the Pacific. The idea is only one directional. Anything that comes back is a problem. The language in Spanish of frontera is actually literally a place of encounter. So it's not one directional, it's actually bi-directional. And so part of it is that something as simple as that, trying to imagine our boundaries as places of encounter rather than as places you know, that are only one directional. Yeah, and I want to add to that, that the word, um, it actually re, uh, evokes the sense of being um, in front of one another. So it presupposes the, the whatever is othered, right? This encounter that you're, you're, you're speaking about, yeah. Quite a few years ago, when I was very active in District United Methodist Women, I had my daughter make a little poster, Be Like God, Be Colorful, with pictures of women in all colors. And um, I lost it after we moved, but I loved to take that to meetings to, to show 
that thought to women, a lot of them in, in Colorado on the prairies and uh, maybe hadn't had a lot of, of affect with uh, people of color. But also, I would like to say that when I was very young, I went to camp and my favorite mission study book was Carmelita of Cuba. At that time, that was the emphasis of the mission study. And I just think it would be wonderful if children had opportunities to send art to Trump and say, this is what our world should look like. I have a question. Uh, this, this is the first time I've seen these images myself. And I'm wondering if you would reflect, perhaps theologically, about what, number, and practically, about what happened to the images, where they went, who painted them over, who undid them, and where, where they're saved anywhere. And what does that mean about our understanding about the power of art, which is destroyed? So these, um, this is still there. You can still see this there, yeah. Um, this was just a performance, so it was, set, it was an intervention that was supposed to be for 45 minutes so that people could come together and um, play. Um, so that was the, the idea behind this work. Um, and these are a series of interventions, right? Like they're supposed to be impermanent. So part of what these artists, are, it's sacramental in a way, because they're trying to make something present through an absence, right? Um, and to, um, to, to bring these bodies to occupy the space, you know, even if for a moment, um, so that uh, we can remember that these are stories and narratives and bodies that were supposed to be there. So we're doing this in memory of, right? Um, so I, I look at these artists um, as staging sacramental <laughs> sort of interventions in many ways because people are coming together to congregate um, and to turn an absence into a presence, um, a present, yeah. We have time for one quick question here or comment. I uh, always love your presentation of the wit of artist prophetic witness, Dr. Junker. Um, so I guess my, my question, and I hope I can articulate it effectively, um, is uh, between, some, between, some group, between some groups or groups of people or understandings of the world versus others, I've seen a distance uh, between the praxis of resistance and the aesthetics of resistance, and what was moving, and what was moving and very thoughtful, and uh, with the examples you showed today, and that I've seen in the past, are that they strive for the unity of both of the those. So, how, from your perspective as an artist and as uh, as a theologian, if I may, if I may be so bold, um, <laughs> is uh, how do we breed, how do we kind of ferment, I don't know, create or ferment a kind of uh, a, a united sense of art and action? That's excellent. Do you say art and action? Yeah. That's excellent. I love that. Art and action together. Yes. Artivists. <laughs> I think that's one way. Um, I came across this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. just a few weeks ago, that the revolution uh, lies in the hands, rev revolution and salvation were the two words that he used, lies in the hands of those creatively maladjusted. <laughs> so speaking about that itch, that pain that sort of moves us into action, I think it's a way of coming together um, and sort of thinking with and rebonding ourselves to what, remembering, remembering, rebonding ourselves uh, to one another through creativity because there's no way we can um, 
act or build a different world if we can't imagine this different world. Uh, so I do think that there's something really, really powerful when we uh, congregate like we are today and we actually think of ways to act out into, into the world. But this is a really long conversation that I want to keep having with you. <laughs> this cannot, you know, address and, and it, um, esgotar. Forgot that word in English. Um, huh? Yeah, not quite. Well, exhaust the the discussion. Yeah, this is a much larger conversation. Well, I would just like to thank um, Johanna for being here today, yes. Dr. Yanker. This is fabulous.